I, I wasn't the first psychologist in my family. I was the 17th psychologist or psychotherapist. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I really understood what the life of a country doctor was. And I remember a conversation with my dad where I said, dad, you know, you put all this time and effort into studying and then getting supervised and developing these skills. But then you wind up with like maybe, you know, 50 or 60 patients who you work with over and over again for years on end. And that, doesn't it seem like that you want to have more of an impact on the world? Don't you want to, don't you want to disseminate what you've learned further and wider? And, and my dad said, no, he was happy to have an impact on a small corner of the world, but I really, I, I guess I had bigger goals. I wanted to make a bigger dent. The Doberman Dan Show. The Doberman Dan Show. For renegade entrepreneurs. Get ready for the uncensored. Nothing held back. No BS reality of how business and life really work. Leave the sheeple to their lives of quiet desperation and get ready to experience an, an exhilarating, exhilarating life, life of, of unbridled, unbridled freedom. freedom. Now prepare yourself because Doberman Dan's off the leash. Hey, welcome to another edition of the Doberman Dan Show for Renegade Entrepreneurs. I am happy to be speaking with Dr. Glenn Livingston today. How you doing, Glenn? Oh, I'm all geared up to talk about renegade issues and rebellious entrepreneurism, and I'm just so excited to be with you. <laughs> Great, <laughs> and because I've been I've, I've been wanting to ask you about how you. Uh, how you got swayed to the dark side of renegade entrepreneurism because you are a, uh, a, a board certified, is that the correct term? Board certified psych. Well, I'm, I'm, psych- a, I'm, a, I'm a licensed psychologist. Licensed psychologist. Nine years of school and thousands of hours of supervision and got a PhD from a top university and, you know, have the, you know, student loans student loan, well, they're all paid off now, but I had hundreds of thousands to go through to prove that. So, um, yes, I started out in the traditional route and was, uh, you know, kind of on on the road to being a pure family doctor, working in a small office with lots of, um, lots of patients and, um, a country doctor. That was my, that was my plan. Which is pretty cool. I mean, um, you know, that's what most uh, mothers want their sons to grow up to be. And so I'm curious. I mean, I know you've done a lot of work. You've specialized in, we've talked about this, you've specialized in certain difficult cases, especially um, uh, suicidal patients, not just the ones who um, do the fake I'm using so I'm using so unscientific terms. You're gonna have to correct my my, <laughs> my you're gonna have to gonna correct all the mistakes I'm making here. But uh, not just working with the people who do the fake. Um, I'm gonna take a few pills and claimed and claim that I tried to kill myself. You know, so I can get some attention, get some help. You've dealt with the real tough cases, the people who really were intent. And 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 had the ability and the the complete intent of committing suicide. Well, yeah, yes, that's true. That's true. I work with the people that were closer to succeeding, but um, 
practice. Suicidal gestures are nothing to take lightly. Um, people, people say that it's a call for attention, but there are a lot of ways you could call attention to yourself. You, you could get a tattoo or a nose ring, right? Um, but to, to, you know, to make a gesture towards ending your life is actually quite dramatic. And, um, you know, so I, I think that if people, people go through that gesture, they actually do need the attention. And so I, I would take those very seriously and I don't, I don't, I don't really laugh those off, but, but, um, but yes, to answer, to answer your question, I, I worked with very seriously suicidal people. I worked with people who had tried it several times before and failed. And, you know, thank God I never, I never lost anybody, but I did lose a lot of sleep. Well, I can only imagine, um, talk about having the weight of the world on your shoulders. That's how I would feel at least. That, that's, um, that's exactly how I felt. And, um, you know, I, I learned a tremendous amount about life while I did that. And I, I guess that, you know, I, I think your question was how, how did I wind up going from there to being an entrepreneur? And, um, you know, and fr first of all, I, I did have a very full practice. I, I did develop a successful practice and being a, being a doctor is in and of itself a form of entrepreneurialism because you don't have a boss and you're responsible for your own income and your own hours and, you know, marketing yourself and managing your finances. And, um, you know, you actually kind of have to sell your patients on continuing to see you. And um, you do have a lot of the challenges that, that most small businesses do. What, what you don't have are the capital risk factors and the need to manage, you know, need to manage people and outsourcers and, um, and the, you don't have quite as many projects as an entrepreneur has when, you, when you're a psychologist, you have to find time to get supervised. You have to find time to do your charts and, you know, kind of sit back and think about what's happening with everybody. But it's, it's nowhere near like the onslaught of, you know, if I look at my whiteboard today, I've got eight major projects which need to, do, need to be moved forward. And if I look at my outlook, I've got like 50, um, you know, different pieces and parts of those projects and I'm prioritizing them and delegating them. And there's, there's nothing like that involved, but, but it really is, you know, it's different than working for the government or, um, be, being a psychologist, it's, it's, um, in private practice, it's entrepreneurialism in and of its own right. But the, the reason that I gravitated to being more of an entrepreneur was that originally I felt like, you know, I put a lot of time and effort into studying this and I, I, I wasn't the first psychologist in my family. I was the 17th psychologist <laughs> or psychotherapist. My gosh. And, and so, you know, I really understood what the life of a country doctor was. And I remember a conversation with my dad where I said, dad, you know, you put all this time and effort into studying and then getting supervised and developing these skills. But then you wind up with like maybe, you know, 50 or 60 patients who you work with over and over again for years on end. And that, doesn't it seem like that you want to have more of an impact on the world? Don't you want to, don't you want to disseminate what you've learned further and wider? And, and my dad said, no, he was happy to have an, impact on a small corner of the world, but I really, I, I guess I had bigger goals. I wanted to make a bigger dent. And, um, 
you know, and I was interested in, so I was interested in psychoeducation and I wanted to figure out how could I sell books and tapes and, you know, build an agency or, or do something like that. And that's, that's why I got involved with entrepreneurialism. And would you mind taking us through the whole progression um, of going from having the, the medical practice to all the various iterations and all the ways you've reinvented yourself? Because um, this is the part I find fascinating, especially... I'll let you tell the story, but um, every everybody, it seems like every every entrepreneur, um, if they don't start out with a challenge, they have to face at least one major challenge, usually multiple ones, but along the way. But I, I, if you don't mind, I would especially like to hear about that. But would you mind like just starting from the whole process from? From, from going from private practice through the various um, entrepreneurial projects that you've, that you've started and run? Sure. I'd be happy to. There was no shortage of pain, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, tell, um, I tell my wife, I said, you know, I'm going to be 50 years old in a couple of months, and I'm finally really, really happy with where I am. But it's not until in the last year or two that I really feel like I got it all together to build a business that I really want to. And um, that has all the elements that I really desire. Every other project that I've done along the way had some major flaw that I didn't see coming. And I only learned through, through painful experience. So, you know, I, I feel the same way. You know what sucks though? Why couldn't we have gotten to this point 25 years ago when we were so much younger? <laughs> the, the reason is that it's countering the fantasy that drives entrepreneurs against the reality of what entrepreneurialism really is. There's a very big discrepancy between it. And the, so so it's very, very difficult to see the roadblocks and pitfalls, um, you know, because you have fame and fortune in your eyelids. It's, it's very, very difficult to see all the, the roadblocks and pitfalls. And, you know, what, one of the reasons my, my current business has to do with training, training and certifying coaches. And one of the reasons I've chose that is because I think that it's possible if you connect with the right coach to share and spare that they can share their experience and spare you some of the pain that I went through that, you know, that they went through. Um, I'm not trying to sell my own coaching services on this. I'm just kind of saying why I'm in this, this business. And, and, um, but you know, I just, I just think that there's something about the psychology of psychology of entrepreneurialism where you have to fail first to be willing to look at reality and, I, I'm kind of a merchant of truth in my, um, you know, in my marketing education business. I'm always trying to tell people what the reality is of what they're going to have to go through, but it's not sexy and it's hard for a marketing educator to sell marketing education that really portrays the reality of what, what's out there because people would much rather talk about the, the fame and the fortune. So, okay. So your, your question is, what did I go through? Could I take you through the progression? Yes. And I, oh, I'm, I'm 
excuse the interruption. I just got to warn you on a couple of these uh, podcasts, they have turned into, in fact, Ben, Ben Settle suggested that I, I, to loosen myself up, I drink a bottle of wine during these podcasts, which <laughs> sounds like Ben Settle. <laughs> listen, listen, man, I can tell you that would be a mistake. Yeah. Um, uh, because several of these <laughs> podcasts have turned in to the Doberman Dan therapy session. And now I've got a, a real doctor, you know, uh, on uh -oh. the line with me. So uh -oh. if I were drinking wine, it would be totally out of control. I'd be crying on your shoulder and talking about what I was bullied as a child. So, um, I promise I won't do that to you, but yeah. So anyway, Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I I want to hear the whole story about all the 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 different iterations, different projects, the the different transformations and different reinventions of yourself and everything. Okay. Well, while I was in graduate school, I uh, met my wife. I, I I married my wife while I was in graduate school. We were friends for seven years before that. And she actually was studying to be a psychologist before she started a, um, a business doing focus groups for major corporations like AT&T and Novartis and Lipton and Nabisco and those kind of people. And her business took off and it turned out to take her on a 20-year sidetrack before she actually went back and finished her degree. Now, can I interrupt and ask just a stupid question? A focus group is where you get just a random group of people together and get their opinion on the company's products. Yeah, it's, it's not such a random group. There, there are a lot of screening criteria to make sure that it's the, the appropriate market that the company wants to talk to. Um, but yes, it's, it's done in front of a one-way mirror. And the clients and the agency usually sit in the back and they do it in multiple cities and um, – Sharon had a particular expertise in interviewing the front room to elicit their emotional motivation to purchase in association with the advertising without necessarily asking them directly about that because it's not something people can talk about directly. And she got a reputation for being able to help brands develop a, an emotional appeal um, and really get at the soul of why customers were developing brand loyalty and why did they purchase in the first place and why did they repeat. And, um, you know, a lot of companies wanted to use her to do that. So she, to this day, she still flies around the world doing that. That's pretty interesting as opposed to the typical, what most people think of as a typical fo focus group. Uh, taste this cola. Um, why do you like it? Oh, I like it because it has a better taste than Sprite. Okay, thank you. But she actually got at the, you know, people don't make dis buying decisions logically. They make buying decisions emotionally. So she she actually figured out a system to get them to state the emotional reasons why they were. Right. They so she, she, she would use guided imagery. Like maybe she would put you in a relaxed state and then have you imagine there was a door there were two doors in front of you and one of them said Coke and the other one said Pepsi. And then you're going to walk through that door and, and find yourself in an entirely different scene. And she'd help you walk through all your senses and she'd help you really, you know, dimensionalize that vision. And then 
you would kind of compare and contrast what you saw for Coke versus Pepsi. And when you compare that across a, you know, a large number of respondents, you start to see patterns and she would help interpret those patterns and tell the companies what to do. You know, just that's, one, one, one example. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, guys like me who were like traditional direct response guys just grew up on, you know, the, the old timer, you know, we read the old timer mail order stuff, you know, weren't, weren't exposed to that type of information. If there could be some sort of, um, combining of that information with direct response, which I know you've done, you're probably going to talk about that could be incredibly powerful. Well, it is. I mean, the combination you would see in the writing of bullets, because because a bullet always contains a rational benefit, um, which is the reason that the consumer says they buy. I buy Eagle's Nest hiking boots because of the microfiber encapsulated beads and um, you know superior traction that they they provide on the rubber sole. That's why I buy Eagle's Nest hiking boots. Um, but the rational benefit. The, the rational benefit is not really the reason they buy. That there is the benefit of the benefit, which starts to starts to get into the human needs and what does it do for their soul. So, I buy micro encapsulate Eagles Nest hiking boots with micro encapsulated beads in the rubber sole because they give me superior traction on the mountain, and that makes me confident that I can finish the climb over any terrain and transcend to the spiritual experience that I have on the top of the mountain. Right. And, and, and so it's, it's the, it's the why and the imagery of where that rational benefit is going to bring you. And that's, that's the real reason that people purchase. It's what, it's what the, it's what the feature can do for their lives. And what, what's amazing is if you're a direct response copywriter and you set up one of these focus groups for yourself and you let Sharon or someone else who's skilled in this type of um, interview and you let them elicit the why behind the you know surface rational reasons, you know, when they kind of get beyond the features and the rational benefits and they get to that emotional benefit, um, all of a sudden your ability to write those bullets is amazing. All, all of a sudden you know how to paint the mood and tone of that letter and you know, um, you know, you're going to have to talk about, you know, what it's like on the top of the mountain and how frustrating it is when you're trying to get past, uh, you know, a little boulder, but you're not able to climb over it because you can't get the traction in your shoes. And, or what if you trip and you have to limp down the mountain the whole way and you've got this whole cadre of stories that, you know, flood you as, as a copywriter because you understand the emotional benefit. And that's, um, that, that's, that's where the intersection is. The other intersection has to do with the brand imagery and design. And I, I know that in the direct response world, the imagery and design is, is less of a concern, but I find that on the internet, it actually is becoming progressively more of a concern because people have to see if a site feels right before they are willing to even bother reading a word. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so just to kind of carry forward through the example, 
Um, obviously, I chose Eagle's Nest as the name of the hiking boot to to convey the top of the mountain, and you know that kind of lens that that informs the imagery you'd be portraying. But when you when you go over all the different reasons people that say that they buy hiking boots, and you find out what the why is behind all of that, and you see an overlapping pattern in the soulful desire, and then you link that soulful desire to very specific images that seem to pop up over again. The vista that you see in the top of the mountain, the um, you know cool mountain air blowing through your hair, the um, you know the the tundra, um, you know, and the rugged terrain that you have to transcend to get to the top of the mountain. Th then you start to know what your site should really look like because what your what your brand needs to do is to transport people from where they are now to where they want to be. You really want to paint, you want to paint a picture of them fulfilling their soul's desires. Um, and you don't see so you, what you don't want to do is you don't want to say to them, buy Eagle's Nest hiking boots because they will help you transcend the mountain and fulfill your soul's desires. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You, you want to show them, you don't want to tell them. And you, you, so you have to see that whole connection. And that's, that's where the intersection of Madison Avenue and um, direct response marketing is in my, in my estimation. Yeah. And it's a shame that is, you know, speaking for myself, I, I actually didn't start looking into that until recently, just simply because a client started sending me stuff about it and, and about branding and, and about some traditional Madison Avenue stuff. His, his, his marketing director came from that world. And I used to just always discount that stuff. You know, I was from the old Gary Howard school of, you know, Gary Halbert's formula for writing the, the sales letter was just sell the damn thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was exposed to this stuff late. And when I say late, <laughs> I am literally only talking within the past six to eight months. And now I'm seeing the brilliance of it and, and the brilliance of combining it. And, 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 you know, a lot of beginning copywriters get stuck in the, uh, well, here's a benefit headline. Okay, um, uh, you know, I can't think of a benefit headline. Here I am, a copywriter, can't improvise headline. So here's a benefit headline, and they get into the copy. If you've ever, you know, you know, learn how to learn how to play your favorite songs on guitar in thirty days or less. You know, dear friend, if you've ever wanted to, you know, be the life of the party and learn how to play. Um, you know, your favorite songs on the guitar in 30 days or less, it, this will be the most important letter you've ever read, the typical hackneyed opening statement. And then it's all feature benefit. Like, um, you know, DVD number one t t teaches this, you know, and here's the bullets of what it teaches. And that's it. And then the close, it's 97 bucks. And they never... You know, they never get into the 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 deeper emotional reason. Why is why does somebody want to play the guitar? Mm -hmm. You know, and they never touch on that. And and sometimes I think some of the more traditional Madison Avenue stuff and even some of the subliminal 
stuff that I've been checking out does a much better job at that than than some of the traditional just sell the damn thing direct marketing stuff. Well, the the problem is when they do Madison Avenue advertising instead of the direct marketing um, sell the damn thing stuff. And, and like it's very easy to get enamored with the discussion about what should the color of the website be and what image should we use and you know what's what's more visually appealing and you know what are people going to like more um, and I I see I actually what I teach people is to go through a process of identifying the features that the problems people want to solve the features they're attracted to to solve it the emotional reasons that they want to solve it, then you layer on the imagery that's connected to that, and then you do the branding. Mm -hmm. See, branding is actually the last thing you do. It's not the first thing you do. And the the reason that most direct response marketers are so um, they're so irritated with brand advertising is that the majority of brand advertising is done at the expense of selling the damn thing. Mm -hmm. um, By the traditional but, Madison Avenue crowd, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, it's almost, I mean, it's really almost a dirty word. And and it's blown off by by a lot of guys. Um, like, don't worry about that stuff, you know. Right. Right. Anyway, so that was a sidetrack from the painful struggle that <laughs> Yes, let's let's get back to we, we want to hear your pain. We want to hear how you suffered. So yeah. so so Sharon had started this this business. It was successful, and she's traveling all over the world working for these big corporations. That's where we left off. She was traveling all over the world, and I was seeing patients. And really contiguously with that, I had had some mathematical modeling training. And the hole in her business model was that what was next, what was logically next after she were to come back and make a report on her emotional insights for a market was, you know, before Procter & Gamble wants to put $50 million behind an advertising campaign, they'd like to put a million dollars behind a study that would quantify, is this right or not? And, you know, there were several, poss several possible types of images and several possible emotional insights. And because it was difficult to because it was difficult to um, quantify that without asking people directly, um, you know, that they, they were stuck. And because the school that I went to was a scientist practitioner model, and because I had a particular strength in, um, you know, regression analysis and mathematical modeling, I, I built a research protocol that made those quantitative inferences based upon people's reactions to um, pictures and collages rather than asking them directly. And I, I won't go into the details of exactly how we did that because it's, it's not what most people would think of at first. Um, most people think it's just like a normative assignment to every picture, but that's really not how it works. But I, I came up with a pretty radical protocol that was well-received. And I thought we were going to be pretty rich from that right away. It wasn't in line with my primary goal, which was to really disseminate psychological information far and wide. I was kind of 
much more pursuing the money at that point. And um, we spent a year of our lives building some software to implement it. And we actually got a million dollar project from Bausch and Lomb. And we went all around the world, um, you know, coordinating a 2000 person study with doctors and patients. And we were supposed to help them come up with a new um, positioning, a new, a new branding, you know, that would coordinate their worldwide, their worldwide efforts. And what, what happened at the end of that? So we, we made a lot of money, but what happened at the end of that was that they basically told us to boil it down to one page and the CEO just kind of looked at it and said, eh. <laughs> and so they <laughs> really, yeah. And, and so they didn't, they didn't go that direction. And I felt like I wasted a year of my life and I thought, well, this is not what I'm in the world to do. And, and, but they was, did, they did, they did pay you. They just didn't use what you did. Right. But it, it was exhausting. I mean, I, I could, cause theoretically I could, or I guess I still, I could have, or I guess I still could go down that route and, you know, could I sell three of those projects a year and just kind of be set for the rest of my life? Um, I could theoretically do that, but it, it was just, it was crazy. I mean, that the, the end of the project wasn't, wasn't the half of it. There were, you know, Oh, something was going wrong in Tokyo. And this was all mind you while I had a 65 person practice. So, um, I was trying to coordinate the whole study and something was going wrong in Tokyo. And so we had to coordinate all of the Asian people into a meeting in the Tokyo airport. And I flew back and forth to Tokyo, um, literally in 24 hours just to, to work that out. And I was sick for like three months after that. And, um, it just, it just really wasn't a balanced life. And I kind of said to myself, I don't really care how much money I'm making. I don't want someone to own me like this. And this is not how I want to live. Um, when I put myself in that, position that you just said getting an assignment like that I feel almost the same amount of weight on my shoulders as I would if I were in the position dealing with the suicidal patients you had to deal with you know it was worse wow it, it was be because with the suicidal patients they really respected me as an authority and they would come to their sessions for the most part and they listen to a great deal of what I had to say to, you know, to a big company. I, I mean, maybe, yes, maybe as I was a little bit like, uh, I, I was just, I was just a, just a high end vendor. That's all I was. And they, even though, even though it was kind of special what I was doing, they felt like they could replace it at any point. And, you know, they felt like they were totally in control and they're, they're and, and there's this whole political process of like, you know, 20 people involved in the decision-making and, and, you know, when I work with a suicidal patient, first of all, I would always work with their family at the same time if it was an adolescent. And I would only work with them if I saw that I had a level of respect and authority from those, those clients. And so even though I'd be up night, up nights worrying, I, I was successful. Like I, I saw dramatic changes in their lives. I saw, I saw, you know, people going from not only like being suicidal to not being suicidal, but, you know, to actually thriving in their lives and, you know, building the lives that they, they wanted to build. And, um, so it, it was actually worse. It's actually worse. You know, you know what I find interesting and I'll, I'll just touch on this now, but then 
as we get further into your story, I think you're going to, um, you know, confirm that I'm absolutely right about this. Now, to me, when I first started, you know, my my little entrepreneurial journey, and of course, every single business I started failed for years on end. What you just talked about accomplishing sound that would have sounded like an absolute dream to me i would have felt like i had just you know i was on top of the world i accomplished a major deal i was the most successful person ever in the history of my family i'm a big shot um my god look at you know look how much bausch and Lomb paid me look i'm this prestigious corporation look how much responsibility i have and then I go out and buy Jaguar. And um, <laughs> but I would feel like that was the epitome of success. And it turns out for you that it was the exact opposite of what you wanted. Well, I mean, I think that's part of what drove me to do it. I think I did feel like that for a while, and and I had all these people working under me, and and you know they threw so much money at us. But um, yeah, I I guess I, it wasn't. I wasn't really very strategic with my career at that time. I was just kind of like, I saw a problem and said, I know how to fix that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was at a meeting with Sharon and, you know, cause I, I, I did some focus groups also early in the early days just to see what it was like. And I was in a meeting with her and I said, you know, I bet they'd pay for this. And it's just, um, yeah, I, I just really wasn't strategic about what was I trying to accomplish and what would fulfill me and what, you know, and I, I think that it's, possible for money to overtake your vision as an entrepreneur. But I actually went through a much more, that, that was painful, but it wasn't so painful because it was a really big learning experience. And, and, you know, we had a lot of money from that. What was more painful was how I lost probably four times the net shortly after that happened. Tell, 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 tell us more about that. You, so, so, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you finish the gig, the CEO, once it boiled down to once one year's intense work boiled down to one page, he looks at it and he's like, eh. And so where did you go from there? So for a little while, we, we sold a few more projects, which were smaller, um, but they were still very, you know, very profitable. But. Sharon and I were looking at each other and saying, you know, I don't, I don't really want all this responsibility and dealing with the whole corporate world. And I don't like that you're traveling all the time. And, you know, we want to have a baby. And how are we ever going to do that? You know, we're kind of getting older. And how are we ever going to do that if you're traveling? And, you know, I have to go to Tokyo and back for 24 hours. And it's just never going to happen. So we decided that we were geniuses and that we could succeed in anything we wanted to do. And there's a whole other side of the research industry, which recruits the respondents and organizes a place for the focus groups to happen. You know, and there, there's technology involved with that in terms of back then they were just starting to stream it over the internet. And I'm talking like, um, I guess 1999, 2000. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, um, you know, recruiting and managing managing people to make the phone calls and get the focus group respondents into the 
into the office, into the into the groups. And this whole, there's this whole other side of the industry where you're not really selling intellectual capital, you're just selling labor and space. And we said, why don't we go into that side of the industry? And, you know, we have some money now because we just sold this big project. Let's, let's invest it all in a big focus group facility on Long Island. So, and, so instead of prior to that, you would arrange an area, like if you're working with Bausch & Long, you would arrange an area and... And it it was either arranged by Bausch and Lam or whatever, and then you decided to arrange, not to arrange, but construct your own focus group area, which was uh, specifically well, they're, they're, yours. They're, they're called facilities, and the way that it works is, if I work at Bausch and Lam and I want to, I want to do a research project in four cities, I will, I will call someone like Sharon and Glenn. And then they will call these different focus group facilities and say, okay, we're looking to talk to women between 25 and 54 who wear contacts and are either, you know, and are not adverse to fashion alarm or whatever. There's a whole set of criteria that would define their, their prospect. And sometimes it would be the competitor's prospects. And, and then the, the focus group facility would say, that's terrific do you have a screener? And we'd write a, we'd write a questionnaire for the telemarketers at the focus group facility to, they call them recruiters there, but they're basically, it's just like a telemarketer. And they, and they call the people in their database who are willing to participate in focus groups and they screen them to see if they match all those criteria. And then they, you know, call them and confirm and make sure they show up and they provide the actual, focus group space and they record the groups and, you know, they, it's just like, it, it makes it possible for people like Sharon and I to do all the intellectual work. Okay. You know, and to come in and run the groups, design the study and then report on it. And so we decided we we're going to go into that end of the industry because at that end of the industry, you don't have to travel. Gotcha. And what's really bizarre is that we kind of neglected what we were so good at. What we were so good at was researching markets and figuring out why people purchased. And we didn't take the time to do it. We didn't research our own clients and figure out why they chose different facilities. We just figured we know how to make the best facility because we've been doing this for so many years. And, you know, and so we made mistake after mistake after mistake. We, we, first of all, we committed to a gigantic lease, to a 10-year lease on Long Island. It was like $20,000 a month. It was in a prime spot. It was a good spot. But it probably shouldn't have been on Long Island because most of the companies, um, most of the companies were in northern New Jersey that Sharon was working with. So she was going to have to convince them to send people out to Long Island to do groups when Long Island was seen as a demographically different part of the country. And most of these people just wanted to go in their backyard and do groups anyway. You know, there, there was like mistake after mistake after mistake, but we were actually beginning to get over those and started to make it work. And then 9-11 hit and um, we had 20 employees and, you know, and um, $150,000 a month as a nut and oh my god <laughs> and w when you combined the fact that now people were not going to fly and the economy crashed with all the mistakes we made up front without researching the market we um 
we should have closed the door on September 12th, but we were really stubborn and we just kept on feeding it money for two years. And we, um, we wound up losing $2 million and we had to borrow a lot of money to, you know, keep that going. And, and I'd never experienced anything like that in my life. And anything else that I'd ever done was always successful. You, you know, everything else that Sharon had ever done was successful. And we just, and I think that's part of the reason we kept going for so long, kept pouring money into it, because we just couldn't accept that anything could fail. How is it possible that we could have such a monumental failure? Right. So that that would be that uh, that would be emotionally devastating for me. I mean, I've, uh, I, I've I've lost I've lost lots and lots of time and lots and lots of money on projects that I felt for sure were going to be successful and. Well, to me, it hurts losing any amount of money, but when you've got your heart invested in something and you truly believe that you're going to make a success of it, um, man, I don't, I, I, I don't know if you're human if it doesn't take the wind out of your sails for a period of time. Right. It took the wind out of my sails for a long period of time. <laughs> I can only imagine. I, I'd say three years. I'd say it took me three years to get back on my feet after that. So here we go with the Doberman Dan therapy session again, because uh, <laughs> I, past couple of years have been challenging for me. So let me ask you, those three years when you took such a huge hit and it took the wind out of your sails, what did you do? Um... Well, do you want to hear the constructive things that I did, or do you want to hear the destructive things? That I, 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 to be honest with you, I would like to hear both because, um, um, you know what? Let's just let's just tell the truth, okay? Because, um, okay, you know, I, 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 I want to hear both, please. If if you if if you're comfortable sharing it. So the stupid things that I did was, um, I discovered chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> and and I ate chocolate squares and chocolate brownies and um you know chocolate kisses and I just basically I lived on chocolate and pizza. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I right. <laughs> I gained 60 pounds. It was really bad. It was really bad. And and I'm I'm kind of a fitness nut so it it was it was a reflection of my self-hatred at that time. And um, in retrospect, I always tell people, I, I mean, first of all, I, we were broke, we weren't poor, because mm -hmm. we, we still had the ability to generate income. Um, and we just had tremendous debt, and, you know, we couldn't believe how much we had lost. And, and Sh Sharon had told people she was not going to work in the industry that we were working in before. So it took a while for her to get her clients back. And I had told, the part that I didn't tell you was that I had told my patients I was going to take a sabbatical, you know, other than emergencies. Okay. And I referred them all to other people. And I, I basically went from having 65 patients to, you know, only having an occasional session here and there. And, and did you, did you have to, start recontacting them and say, Hey, I'm, I'm now available for consultations. Well, you know, 
we ha- as a psychologist, I made between one hundred and fifty thousand and two hundred thousand dollars a year, um, and, and sometimes a little less, depending upon depending upon what was going on. But as a as a you know corporate consultant, um, even before I'd invented that protocol we could make like $400,000 a year on, on my side mm-hmm. and same on Sharon's side or more. So we had the ability to pay it back a lot quicker if we did that. So we kind of focused on that. And I, so I didn't re I didn't recontact the, the patients. I could have done that, but I, I didn't do that because uh, I decided that I really wanted to pursue the internet marketing dream. That's okay. what I just, that's what I decided. That, and that, that took, that took a lot of balls. Um, to, to go that direction than to go back to the proven thing. Well, thanks. I, I didn't feel like it at the time because it, because n- nothing was working at first. I, cause I made mistake after mistake in the internet marketing world. Also, I, uh, it, it really wasn't until, and I just, I just think this is such an important lesson to ask yourself, what are your core competencies? What have people paid you for in the past the most? And can you find a business which leverages as many as possible of those core competencies? Because what what happened to me was I just got enamored with the idea that the computer was going to make money for me. And I what I didn't realize was that the internet is a multiplier. It's not a it's not a business in and of itself. It you you have to have. You have to know what the value is that you're bringing to the market, and the internet is just a way that you efficiently and effectively bring it to market. But if you don't have, if you're trying to bring something, you know that you haven't proven value for before, it's very difficult to, no matter how efficiently or effectively you multiply that with what's available on the internet, it's it's very difficult to do that. So if you if you hate dogs and go around kicking. Uh, random neighborhood dogs and decide to put up you somebody tells you the dog market's a great market on the internet and you decide to put up a dog training site highly unlikely you're going to be successful with that you, you could probably be successful with a product about how to kick dogs and get away with it <laughs> can i ask you to repeat something i mean we've got it on recording but it was so important and so it, it it went by it went by so fast, but it was so such a breakthrough statement and could be such a life changing statement for many people, including myself, who I, I need to hear this repeated again. Could you start over with what you said about um, that the internet? Uh, going back to what you have your core competencies see your core competencies what you've been good at what you've been successful at blah 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 and how that can be multiplied on the internet if 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 that is if you remember what you said it was well well, i do i do what what i i guess in simpler english is that if if you couldn't sell it offline sitting in the living room with a prospect then you don't have any business trying to sell it on sell it online. And what what that means is you want to go back in your life and ask yourself why why have people paid me in the past? What what is my core competency? And for me in particular, there were two things that people paid me for in the past. One was my 
ability to research a market and reduce the risk and leverage returns based upon the insights that we generated. And the other was psychological insight and guidance. And if you think about it, the things that I, in retrospect, the things that I tried afterwards didn't really utilize either of them. I just kind of had a bunch of ideas and I went out and I tried them. So for a while I was, you know, since I was um, working on losing weight myself, I decided I was, I wrote a book called Eat With Your Head, which I've taken off the market because it was lousy. Um, but I was going to sell that and that didn't work. And then I, I did lose weight, but, um, but I, I had never, it was not my core competency to teach other people how to lose weight. I'd never been taught to do that before. I didn't really understand, you know, how to make that valuable to other people. I just had my personal philosophy and, um, you know, I, not that I couldn't do that at this point if I wanted to, but that that's not the lay down, right? That's not the that's not the simple path, right? And you know, and I wasn't um, I wasn't applying my research methodology to my own businesses. I I had, I mean, over the years we've been paying millions to do this type of corporate research, and I'd actually. I'd actually studied research design and methodology for nine years, if you count college and graduate school, because I it was a psychology major in a Stony Brook University, which is very behaviorally oriented and experimentally oriented. And then I was in a scientist practitioner program in graduate school and, you know, I went to one of the top schools in the country. And I, I just didn't realize how much I knew that was a competitive advantage in the marketplace. I just, I just didn't know. And, and so why, why was I neglecting that nine years of experience and, you know, which obviously, obviously was worth a lot of money that people were paying me for. Why wasn't I leveraging that in the business I was trying to start? So that was just kind of silly and things didn't come together for me until about three years later when I decided to do that. Um, when, when I, at first I started researching I don't know if you remember, you know who Frank Kern is, right? Yes. Well, I, he had a he had this thing called the um, underachievers model where you would survey the market. You'd take out an advertisement and you'd survey people when they when they clicked on the advertisement to find out what they were looking for because you were writing a book. Yes, I yeah. remember that. And then you'd find out what they wanted and you just, you'd go out and you'd hire an author to write a book about what they were trying to figure out. And you'd sell them the book and you'd use their language to sell them the book. So if, if, um, if I was going to write a book about guinea pigs, I would let them take out an advert. I would advertise to people who were typing in the word guinea pigs or guinea pig cages or guinea pig care. And I would ask them, you know, what's, what's the most important thing you're looking for. And, and I added a couple of things to Frank Kern's methodology because you know, my research background, I understood. Um, he was just looking at the survey responses as a whole, but I felt like you really wanted to isolate the most responsive customers. So the people who said it was really difficult to find elsewhere, the information they were looking for, the people who engaged 
very deeply on those surveys, the people who would leave their phone number because they were willing to talk to you afterwards. I, I set up all of these diagnostic indicators to create a formula so that you could figure out who the buyers were really likely to be. And then I would analyze that and have a book written about that. And I turn around and sell that in, in the language that they gave back to me. And, um, and that was successful time after time. And that, and then I started to build a little, um, it, it's harder to do nowadays because advertising is more expensive and it's a little harder to get those advertisements approved in Google. If you're just taking a survey, there are ways to do it, but, but, um, but that was my, you know, that was my foray into success again. And I, within, oh, I guess it was in about, within about eight months from the time I started that, I was making a hundred grand a year uh, gross doing that. And then that kept growing to a point, but I got too diversified. You, you I, went too, too wide and too many, and too many niches, correct? I actually had 17 of them. 17. And 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 uh, since I I still find this amazing, would you please share the very first niche that you took this model to? Guinea pigs. <laughs> <laughs> and and so for the life of me, how in the world did you select that? Um Nobody was doing it. There were no advertisements at the time on guinea pigs, which I now look at as a bad sign. Um, but, but, but I didn't know that back then. And my mother made me give back my guinea pig that I took back from camp when I was a kid. And I was always upset. I always wanted a <laughs> guinea pig. <laughs> now this is turning, now this is turning into the Dr. Glenn Livingston therapy session. That's true. And, and, and Glenn, how did you feel about that? <laughs> That's like the stupidest question a therapist ever asks, by the way. <laughs> I, I, having grown up with two therapists as parents and a you know family of seventeen psychologists, with my father practiced at home, you, you, like, you like you like want to claw your ears off when you hear someone say how how did how does that make you feel? Or, or all those it makes, makes me feel like punching you. That's how it makes me feel. <laughs> <laughs> All those, all those things they teach you and, and how to respond. Good, good psychotherapy is not how does that make you feel or <laughs> why, why don't you scream at this pillow or yes. here, 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 take the talking stick. That, that is not good psychotherapy. <laughs> whatever, you, whatever you see on TV, whatever you think it is, that is not what good psychotherapy is. So pl please make fun of those people and, you know, start a campaign on Facebook to people to stop saying that. <laughs> So, so, so guinea pigs. So you started in guinea pigs, and, and you got to tell us how it went because it went well. I sold over a hundred thousand dollars of guinea pig books, ten dollars at a time. Ten dollars at a time. Now, uh, over a few years. Do the numbers on that. I mean, that that's quite it's a, a feat. It's a lot of piggy books. <laughs> And anybody who's not, I mean, we have people from advanced people to, to rookies listening to this, and a rookie may think, big freaking deal. Uh, an advanced guy knows that is a huge success. I, I didn't know what a success it was at the time. Um, and I actually did the same thing with rabbits and then with body language. And and I had I had some that were just mildly profitable and 
um, kind of sat out there for years. And I eventually took most of them off the market because I just couldn't. I'll tell you what else happened and how I kind of clawed my way back to the top. But but I, I just found that I couldn't focus on it. And every now and then someone comes to me and says, you know, could I could I revitalize that for you? And they don't, they don't quite understand what's involved in doing that these days. But I still do have those as assets. And um, gosh, if I had the time and energy to put together a project to sell a pet care business, I could probably make some money doing that. But it, it, was, it, was, it was kind of exciting. It was, it was really a lot of fun. But, um, but I got too diversified and there were too many people talking to me about, about back ends. And I didn't know how much I didn't know about business. I just didn't know, I didn't know how to make the right kind of deals. I didn't know how to manage joint venture partners. I didn't know when to hire an employee versus an outsourcer versus, you know, doing a joint venture. I didn't know how much to pay for vendors, how to negotiate those contracts. I, I just didn't know so much. And I basically got stuck for years, um, like two or three years. I was just kind of stuck. I'm, I'm going to say I got to the point that I could pull a hundred grand out of the business. Um, so I felt like I had something. But that's, you know, if I had just stayed with being a doctor, I'd be making a lot more. Or certainly if I was doing um, the marketing research, I'd be making a lot more. But it was so alluring because it was so much fun and the computer was doing a lot of the work. And and then what happened was I started talking – I went to this group mastermind with um, Perry Marshall – and I actually paid ten grand a year to do that because I had hired him as a coach first, mm-hmm. and I hired Jonathan Mizell along the way too, and he was very helpful to me. He actually got me started with that model. He's the one who pointed out, you know, Glenn, you should be doing your core competencies. Um, but but um, Perry asked me if I would speak at his seminar because I started talking about what I was doing in the group mastermind, and he said, Glenn. I'm going to do my first seminar. This was back in 2006. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to speak at the seminar because I think it's amazing what you're doing. And I, I said, okay. And then we were talking in one of my coaching sessions. And I think he said, you know, you should sell something at the end of the seminar. And I said, like what? He says, I don't know. Maybe you want to teach people in depth about how to do what you do with this research. And I said, okay. <laughs> so... I didn't, I didn't think that anybody would want it. I really didn't think anybody would want to do that. Um, but I went on up and I made a big presentation about how well I've been doing with the research. And I kind of talked about the guinea pig numbers and the rabbit numbers. And, and I went through the details of, of the method as much as I could in an hour. And I just said, yeah, and so, you know, next month there will be a weekend in June. And I'm going to um, – I'm going to – you can come to my house for a weekend and I'll teach you everything there is to know about this for $4,000. And a bunch of people came rushing up and gave me their credit cards. I mean, not, <laughs> not the whole audience, but you know, I think it was like 15, 16 people. Enough to be pretty darn exciting. And I, so, so it was pretty exciting. And I actually wound up giving those people their money back before the seminar. I, I held a seminar anyway, but I just was so freaked out that it wasn't going to be good enough. I said, I can't, I can't take your money. I just don't think this is going to be good enough. And, you know, look, I've only been, I've only been making a hundred grand a year for, even though I have all these successes, it's only been like a hundred grand a year I can take out of the business and I'm having all these problems in the business. I don't really think I'm a guru. I, I just think that, um, 
you know, yes, you paid for it. I really appreciate it. And I, I want to deliver on the seminar anyway, but I don't want your money. And that was kind of stupid, by the way, because. <laughs> <laughs> the dog agrees that was stupid, but admirable since it was your first foray into that. And, and I could understand your thought process. You're like, yeah, I've never done this before. I'm afraid it's going to suck. So, right. So I, I gave them all their money back and I did a seminar and they loved it anyway. And thank God I recorded that seminar. So I, I had a, I had a guy come and record the seminar and, um, then I think I was talking to Perry and we decided I would sell the seminar and cause the seminar was really good. Perry Marshall actually came to that seminar as a student because he wanted to learn what I was teaching. And, um, so I spent the next six months really learning how to write copy. I hired Terry Dean as a coach at that point. Mm -hmm. And we must have gone over that letter 17 times. And um, the other thing I did that was really good at that seminar was I invited a friend to come for free. This was when everybody was going to pay me. And he said, well, I'll do that, but I'm going to bring a video camera and I'm going to get testimonials from everybody for you. And he took video testimonies at the end of that seminar. And to this day, I use like 20 of those video testimonials just to, just to basically let everybody know how smart I am. Um, and let other people say it for me. And I test it, you know, sometimes I split test at it and it always works better with videos from that seminar on there. Hmm. So I actually tell people if they're just getting started, host a local seminar um, get a whole bunch of people to come, you know, and, and th these days you have to disclose when you get a, when a testimonial is from a, someone who got the product for free. Um, but it, I don't even think it really matters. You still get you know, these raving testimonials about what you teach and how you help them. And, and it goes a long way to the first set of proof you need to start selling your product or service. So, um, so I started selling it and it sold pretty well, not exceptionally well because uh, it's spreadsheet oriented and, and it's kind of appeals to the left brained part of the market and, and there's a lot of work involved. So it's not super sexy. It's very powerful, <clears throat> but it attracts real business people, not, not biz op people. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's not a problem with the product. That's that's not the problem. The problem is a, a majority of end users don't want to do the work required to take advantage of the information. <laughs> right. And and my my trajectory from there was kind of steady, solid growth, not astronomic growth, but like kind of steady and solid, and. Well, I guess there's a little bit of a downturn when Google changed all their rules and then I had to revamp everything. Um, and see, marketing education was not really the right business for me to be in because I don't like to do a lot of joint ventures. It turned out the best way to reach that market is through joint ventures. So unlike what I was teaching, when what I had done, which was developing paid advertising systems, now, it's very difficult to 
do paid advertising for marketing education because the paid advertising is dominated by expensive services. So you can't you can't easily sell a one thousand dollar course in paid advertising when the guy next to you is selling you know a pay per click marketing service and is he's going to collect twenty five thousand dollars from the prospect over eighteen months. That's right. They've, they've know, the, got the deep pockets. It's it's pretty darn hard. It's pretty hard hard to compete with that. And so the the way to get to those people is through the seminar promoters and other people that you know are are educating. And it's kind of like a good old boys club. And I there's just, there's just a few people I was actually comfortable promoting with, and I wound up getting maybe a little too comfortable because it's a lot of fun. It's it's a lot of fun to teach marketing, and especially I, I kind of own that niche in the market. There's nobody else with my background and experience who teaches marketing research anywhere near as well as I do. So I had a very unique USP and a fairly safe position. And if, if I wanted to fly around the country speaking and if I was willing to do promotions with a lot of guys that I'm not willing to do promotions with, then, you know, I, I could be netting a million dollars a year in that. But I, I wasn't really willing to do that. And also was frustrating to me how few people actually implemented what I was teaching. Mm-hmm. I know that's the case with almost anything you teach, but see, but like I once heard something from Dan Kennedy where he says, don't, don't try to make your customers successful, try to make them happy. And that just bothers me so much. I, I really want to make my customers successful. And I know in some respects he's right. Like you can't, if you feel responsible for the success of every one of your customers, you are you're never going to have a business because people are going to do what they're going to do. But on the other hand, I really want to put things in place that make people successful. And so, um, you know, I, I, I felt like I just wasn't a, it wasn't a soulful match for me in the right ways. And I wasn't really leveraging my psychological background either. And so in the last couple of years, I started to research the coaching market, people who actually want to get trained and certified as a coach and the part of my story I didn't tell you was that a very large proportion of my practice, once their symptoms resolve, not, not necessarily the suicidal people, but, you know, their parents and the people around them and, and a lot of the couples that I work with, because I advertise as a couples therapist too, um, they, their symptoms were resolved, but they didn't want to stop. And so I would kind of take, take them into what today you would call more coaching than psychotherapy. Um, and today I, I recommend that if people are psychologists, they have an actual discrete practice for that. Um, so you keep the two distinct, mm-hmm. but, but, um, I have a very strong background in coaching and I feel like I could talk to people about more soulful things. And, and the thing about, the thing about coaches is that every coach goes out and coaches someone, even if they just get a couple of paying clients, the implementation rate is a lot higher. And even just the process of becoming a coach, cause you have to get coached to become a coach. It's, it's life transforming. And so I feel like if I build, build a big organization full of people who want to coach others, that I, I'm really transforming people's lives and helping the helper. And, and you know, our, like our USP in the coaching market is, is being the most powerful program on the market for coaches that actually want to market a thriving practice because of how we teach people to market and all the background I have in, in marketing. So it's, it's really starting to take off and, the nice thing about it is that you can just reach this audience just about everywhere. It's um, 
you know, you can reach them through paid search advertising. You can reach them through Facebook advertising. You can reach them through interrupt advertising. It's, it, it's, um, it's much more of an operations and scalability challenge than a marketing challenge at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, if you asked me a few weeks ago, I might not have said the same thing because we, we actually, we didn't, we didn't have enrollment dates and deadlines and that was kind of holding us back a little bit. Um, but we, we finally cracked the code with enrollment dates and deadlines and, um, which were necessary anyway, because we couldn't take as many people as were coming through otherwise. So plus it's something people are accustomed to every, every Institute of higher learning has to do that too. So yeah, you don't, you don't go to, if you go to school, you want to know when the class starts, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's my story. And, and I guess the, the real painful part is just that I, it was deflating to the first big failure was really deflating, right? It was really, really deflating after, you know, I was the top of my class in school. I got straight A's. I went to one of the top schools in the country. Um, I got one of the top scores in the licensing exam. I built a, a clinical practice in record time. I mean, I thought I could do anything. I just thought I could do anything. And then I lost $2 million. And then I tried three years worth of different business projects and they all failed. And um, my wife is kind of, you know, chomping at the bit saying, Glenn, I want you to be happy, but you know, you're 40 years old and you have to do something. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. and, um, um, I mean, it was, it was miserable. It was absolutely miserable for a long period of time until the trick really was going back to my core competency. You know, you, I, I think, okay, so this, this is the last point maybe I'd like to leave you with unless you have other questions. I, I think that people, when they're deciding to start a business of their own, part of that is an escape fantasy. I'm going to escape having the man's boot on my neck. I'm going to be in business for myself. I'm not going to do what I did before. But the truth is to be really successful in business, you have to do what you did before, in a, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and I've actually observed so many successful businesses destroy themselves by getting away from those core competencies. So um, it's just, it was a very, very painful lesson for me to learn. And I, I honestly think if I, if I went for, um, there are some higher level coaching groups with, um, you know, w- which are like restricted to people who have X dollar a year businesses or, or better. And I actually kind of think if I did that earlier on, I might've learned these lessons without as much pain, but, um, I'm really happy where I wound up, you know, I'm, I'll be 50 in a couple of months and the second half of my life is approaching and, um, you know, I get to live another 50 years doing exactly what I want to do. So I guess all is well that ends well, but I hell of a lot of suffering along the way. Hell of a hell of a lot of suffering in in uh, in changes and and reinventions to get to get where you are now. Um, but I, you know, I guess that's part of the process. I personally have not been able to avoid that. Um, nobody else I know who's a renegade entrepreneur has been able to avoid it. I now I do know guys who uh 
started an online business. He he did have he had sales experience in one of these MLMs that that loaded people up. They front end loaded people. You know they they get people on the phone and they were very high pressure sales and loaded people up with four or five thousand dollars worth of inventory. And then he decided to start an online business selling uh, supplements. So he had. Uh, sales experience, and he could translate that into copy on his website. And it was enormously successful from the start. And he actually started getting promoted. I won't mention his name. He started getting promoted on the circuits and then even came out with his own product that was had him traveling around all the IM events promoting it. And I said... You know, not that I was jealous of him. I was happy for his success. But I said, listen, just watch the dude because every entrepreneur goes through their dark period. Things start at, most of them go through it in the beginning. You know, we're, we're just, you know, trying to find our way in the dark, not knowing what the hell we're doing. And then, it takes us years and years and years to figure it out, but he had success from the beginning. And I told people, you watch him. He's going to have his dark period, and it's going to be even worse. And that's exactly what happened. His dark period came later. Um, I, unfortunately, I have not found a way to, <laughs> to, be, to be a successful entrepreneur without going through all those challenging learning I, I, I don't know anybody that has I, I really I don't know I mean I, I guess I've supervised some coaches and therapists who just blossomed from the beginning um, but they were really committed they're really committed and they you know they were well people they'd they'd gone for their own coaching and psychotherapy first and and they had a very specific niche that they wanted to work on and and um, and that's just a few there's just a few that actually take that path. Most people suffer. I, I, I want to respect your time. In fact, I think I kept you longer than I promised. Um, I just have one question. Your your whole system of doing market research is is way too involved for us to get into. In fact, you you and Terry Dean developed a product which which I said. Now you've. You don't sell it as a product anymore. You've broken it up into different modules for different things. But when I got it, I said it it is as good or it rivals or even takes uh, Gene Schwartz's breakthrough advertising to another level. That's how good it was. Wow. So, I mean, you're, all these things you've learned about market research and especially about how different keywords affect your advertising. You know, somebody looking for one keyword is still in looking mode and is not really your prospect. Somebody looking for a very similar keyword, and, you know, it can be something as as simple as a, a plural form of the keyword is is now a buyer. So I, we can't go into the details of that. That's, that's taking you, you know, probably a decade to get worked out, but are you able to take, sum up all the lessons you've learned 
um, about online marketing after all this time and, and give any tips for, let's break it up into two people. One for the rookie who's like, my God, I'm overwhelmed. I'm on all the launch. I'm on all the gurus lists. And every day I'm getting a, a pitch for a product that is the magic money online button. And I'm overwhelmed and I don't know where to start and I don't know what to sell and I'm overwhelmed. What the hell do I do? And the second person would be, <laughs> I know I'm asking a lot, Glenn, but I hope you can, <laughs> I hope you can humor me. The second person would be, what would your advice be for person number two who is adv advanced? Um, uh, let's make this a little more personal then. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make this as personal as possible. And again, go back to the Doberman Dan therapy session. Somebody who has been, who's an experienced entrepreneur, copywriter, serial entrepreneur since 95, but sold his last business two years ago and is still stumbling around uh, 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 trying to find his his niche, a niche that will make him happy and that will make him feel fulfilled. And like you were talking about earlier, um, your father was happy with being a, a small time doctor, but you wanted to make a bigger impact. So have you got advice for those two people that you can summarize? And I know I'm asking a lot. So which one first? Let's do the rookie guy first, who's confused and is getting bombarded by all the BS from the, the internet marketing gurus. So the first thing you need to do is understand that the internet is indexed by keyword. So if you're overwhelmed, you need to focus on a keyword or two that you would like to sell to. And then you can start to eliminate the things that you don't need to study and things that you do need to study. So um, I, I advise, for example, my new coaches to use the AdWords keyword planner to find a niche with, you know, a reasonable amount of volume um, that if they were to do a local workshop about that keyword, for example, emotional eating or, um, oh, emotional eating or, um, you know, teenage depression or, um, you know, female empowerment or, or something that's, you know, a kind of clearly defined audience. It's a problem that people search for. And that if you were to, you know, put up a sign in your library or, or school or, hospital or temple or church that you could see people want a few people showing up for a workshop on that on that topic and that it's interesting to you you think you might like to work with that audience and once you know what that audience might be and you don't have to get married to it right away you just need to have to you need to have to learn this focusing skill then look on the internet to see you know check check every day to see who's advertising when you type that in, go mm -hmm. to Google, start an incognito window so that it doesn't look at your history and see who's advertising when you type in that term. And eventually what looks like hundreds of advertisers, you're going to find one or two are really towards the top of the page most consistently. 
look at and then those the aver, those are the advertisers you want to want to look at look at what are they claiming what are they promising get on their list if you can follow up with them um, look at the language they use and then then see is this something you think that is this a field where you feel like you might like to make those kind of promises and and help those kind of clients and um, and if that's true then you know what to focus on now you know now you know kind of what business model is required to make money in the market because these people are not going to advertise for months on end you know in those expensive high-end positions if they're not making money so you get a sense of the business model that's required to make money and you know what language seems to be working what kind of offers seem to be seem to be making sense and now you can start you can set up a google alert in those terms you can go to youtube and look at the youtube videos on those terms you can look for high profile blogs in those terms you can go to search.twitter.com and look to see what people are tweeting about those terms and just got to get a sense of the conversation See, that this gets you focused. This gets you really focused and gives you a sense of how people are selling, what's selling, and what's required to get into that market. And when you do that, it'll become clear to you what you need to do to move forward, what, what's going to be necessary to move yourself forward. And the if you're very distracted by, you know, the latest SEO software or, um, you know, social media magic guru formula or something like that it's because you don't have any focus in your career you, you don't you don't have that focus that you're the, the people most vulnerable the, the suckers the real suckers are the people that don't have any focus in their life and focus is a tremendous combatant to um you know to con men it's a tremendous combatant for um, some, some anonymous person who's had a lot of success before, but it's going through a dark period. <laughs> yes, so, would... <laughs> his name is Swim, by the way, and that stands for someone who isn't me. There you go. Um, what what I would do is make a list of your core competencies and make a list of what have people given you the most money for in the past, what has been the most enjoyable to you, and then I would look at your current assets, the, the list that you have, the um, you know opportunities that are in front of you, the, the, the markets you've considered working in. And I would ask myself, where would those core competencies be most valuable? And the last thing I would say is that when, when people have had... You know, it, it takes a lot of different components to put a successful business together. It's kind of like building a pipeline. And if there's one hole anywhere in the pipeline, there's no water that comes out at the end. However, if you know how where to source the materials for the pipe and you know um, how to clear a particular clog or you know, um, you know how to negotiate with the vendors and the pipeline, you know a lot of those different pieces and parts, but you are current situation doesn't permit you to have the whole thing yourself, then doing consulting or coaching is a really good interim thing to do because first of all, you, you're genuinely helping people with the skills that you do have. So it boosts your self-esteem up pretty quickly. And I think that's really necessary to be an entrepreneur. I think, you know, because you don't get the feedback until you have a whole pipeline, we're very, very vulnerable to depression. And I, th I think you need to 
you need to have that kind of success in consulting and coaching. Um, and, and secondly, it builds your network. Um, you get other people out doing testing for you and you're actually helping them. Um, you're actually, you know, helping them and seeing results. And it reminds you that it, it reminds you that you're very successful at the pieces and parts and it kind of gives you the fortitude to go forward and put the whole thing together for yourself. So um, I actually think that most successful or previously successful entrepreneurs should have some type of coaching or consulting as part of their mix because otherwise um, they are, they're too vulnerable to the manic depressive lifestyle of entrepreneurs when things work or don't work. Yeah, that, that, my God, we could spend an hour talking about that. That is a problem. And um, like our conversation with Terry Dean the other day, Terry, Terry has been doing coaching for a long time and, what an advantage, because not only has he had all this experience seeing what works and what doesn't work in his own businesses, now he's seen what works, what doesn't work, what small changes make big, you know, changes and conversions with, you know, a multitude of clients and a multitude of, uh, of niches. So your, your advice on coaching uh, is is spot on. My God, the education you could get from that is is unbelievable. And and some of my best business partners have been um, students who I coached for years beforehand. Because there's nothing like educating people in your philosophies, the way you like to do business, seeing it work for them, for them to be committed to doing and for the probability of being successful with you to, you know, go up dramatically. There's nothing like that. So, um, you know, I, I, I just, I think just think it's a tremendous thing to add to any, any business. Good point. I, I swear to you, this is the last question and I'm going <laughs> to let you go. I, I do. I do have to go in a minute, but go ahead. And, and it'll be a quickie. Uh, for the rookie, you were talking about, you know, checking out different things and looking at different niches and thinking about things that you've been good at or have interest in or whatever. What online tools do you recommend for doing uh, uh, keyword searches when you're doing that kind of research? Well, um, I, 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 I recommend the AdWords keyword planner. Um, that That's kind of like the easiest place to to go or, or, um, word track, word tracker actually still has some very strong components, but, but I don't want people to get involved in the level of competition and, you know, the long tail and everything like that. I, I really would prefer they're looking at the broad possibilities, um, to avoid getting too distracted and overwhelmed. Yeah. Don't, don't keep it simple. Don't get don't get don't go down the rabbit hole because that's can that's really easy to do when you start using those tools and for competitive research i thoroughly recommend espionage and what espionage will do it, it's expensive it's like 80 bucks a month um so i i actually reviewed the free way to do it yourself which is to you know go out and do the same search for the same keyword four times a day and Take some screen, take some screenshots, and keep track of who's appearing above the fold. But Ice Free and 
automates and quantifies that for you and will automatically rank order the success of the different advertisements and they'll have a database of the advertisements and landing pages and you can actually download their competitive keywords that kind of thing too but but um it's extremely extremely valuable so that's how i do that good stuff and the, and the google uh, the google adwords uh planner is free of course yeah, it is. You you have to open up an account, and you might need to put your credit card in, but you don't have to spend any money. Okay. At well, least not as, not as of this recording. Okay. Well, Glenn, this has been one of the best interviews I've ever had, and uh, I really appreciate you doing it. Thanks a bunch, and uh, I hope you'll come back someday. Anytime, my friend. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Doberman Dan Show for Renegade Entrepreneurs. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And also make sure to head over to DobermanDan.com and subscribe to all the free tools, tactics, and secrets to help build your business quickly so you can experience the Renegade Entrepreneur lifestyle. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where our guests reveal their best secrets for financial independence and living a completely free lifestyle.